listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant podcast, brought to you by Dispatch Media and thedispatch.com. Uh, today's episode is sponsored by our friends at ZipRecruiter. More about them in a little bit. Um, excitingly, we are recording this in the new lavish, dare I say extravagant, uh, studios of the dispatch, not at the American enterprise Institute, which I still love dearly, but we're giving, we're, we're test driving this thing. So, um, it's very exciting. And because there's a high, high chance of electrocution, we didn't want to bring in, you know, some like big name guest or something. So instead we figured we would try this with, um, with Declan Garvey, 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 Garvey. Um, I have always have this panic when I'm saying someone's last name or first name on the podcast, you know, it's. You've like, seen it in writing. No, I know. And I've, I've talked about you with other people, mostly disparagingly, but it's, um, I always have this momentary moment of panic, even though like I know names. I just like, when I had Sarah Flores on here, I was like, is it, it's not Sarah Flores. It's Sarah Isger. Sure. See, this is what I'm talking about. It's panic. Anyway, <laughs> Declan is one of our uh, staff writers. He's one of the, the main forces behind the um, morning dispatch. And uh, welcome to your first episode of The Remnant. Thank you. Great to great to be here. So so this is the first one recorded uh, in in this studio here. This is the first one recorded with actual podcast equipment rather than the little portable recorder gotcha. I did with Sarah and um, and they did do the first episode of uh, what's the thing called the advisory opinions. <laughs> advisory opinions. Yep. But but and so Sarah sounded great, but. David French was doing it apparently from the Taj Mahal. And so there, were, there was a lot of echoing on mm -hmm. his end. And, and we've heard from um, quite a few audiophilic uh, uh, perfectionists out there about how we have to do better. And so we're going to do better. Yes, uh, I, I am running the, the Dispatch Twitter account right now. Um, and we got some, some feedback that it sounded like David was on the toilet um, uh -huh. for that podcast. I don't think he was, but yeah, you know, cause I know <laughs> what David sounds like on the toilet and that wasn't it. <laughs> so, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you are a Chicagoan. I am. Yep. And you uh, went to this, uh, what, what, what's the pejorative way of calling it? It's not, it's not a trade school in New Haven. That's Yale. Yes. Um, it is a, it is a small school outside of Boston. Yeah. Um, though, though for the record, you brought that up. I did not. Uh -huh, um, uh -huh. But yes, so I, I am new to, new to the dispatch as, as I guess we all are, but uh, was doing consulting for, for the past three years here in DC, um, political consulting and uh was excited to to see the mission when when you guys announced it, and uh, I'm very glad to be aboard. But originally from Chicago, oldest of four, um, Irish Catholic, and uh, you know it's that's the the long and short of it. So uh, the reason my wife, the fair Jessica, a also a very popular re uh, Remnant podcast guest, um, has a sweet spot for you is one that you uh, you dog sat for our <laughs> our dogs, but two and cats. So you cat sat for the dog, cats and <laughs> dogs sat for the dogs. Uh, but also because um, the name Declan Wallet reeks of Gaelicness that to the extent that Michael Brennan Doherty would be jealous, you were in <laughs> fact named after Elvis Costello. I am. Yeah. So he is Declan Patrick McManus. Um, I am Declan Patrick Garvey. Uh -huh. And uh, my parents actually just saw him in Chicago. Uh, he's still... 
still got it. I think he was sick for a little while, but he's better and still performing. I think he's almost 70 now. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Big and my f- wife's a huge Elvis Costello fan. Yeah. 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 And I, I guess I was born into forcing or have to be one. So yeah. I'm actually, and it's weird. It didn't even occur to me to point this out until just now. I am actually technically named after a black jazz trumpeter named Jonah Jones. This is not a joke. Really? My parents saw him in concert and thought, oh, wow, it's a cool name. And they had, they were sort of committed to biblical starts with J because my older brother's name was Josh. And so there you go. There, you go. there is a famous Jonah in the, in the Bible. As there well. is in fact, yes, <laughs> he's the prophet of Nineveh. Um, and uh, I've heard literally all of the Jonah jokes. Um, yeah, I won't, I won't attempt any. Yeah. Um, and it didn't help when I was editor at large of national review because it combined with the large editor jokes, and Jonah <laughs> and the whale jokes, it just, it, it became a problem. But anyway, um, so you went away on assignment for the, I guess, te- kind of technically the first time, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, you've done lots of stuff on the Hill and all that, but you went and covered a Trump rally. How was it? I did. Uh, this was my first time going to a Trump rally. I was up in uh, in Hershey, Pennsylvania yesterday. Uh, drove up there from from D.C. And um, it, I mean, it, w- it was an experience. The uh, crowd, the Giant Center, uh, right outside of a the Hershey theme park. Um, oh, been there several times. Yeah, so it's uh, and the whole, the air smells like chocolate. Although yesterday it was very cold and very rainy, um, which is a testament to the upwards of ten thousand people that that made the trek out there. Um, but yeah, so there there were started uh, programming at around five, some local officials and and some radio hosts, and then the the main event, uh, Mike Pence opened for. For Trump, uh, who who kind of started out the evening uh, addressing the news of the day in in his mind as as the IG report, some some of the more um, uh, minute details of kind of the different investigator generals and 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 which report he's placing more credence in and things like that, um, moved on to to impeachment, um, and then USMCA was kind of his big one of his big rallying points of the night, and then he you know he started to go. Um, back and, and play the greatest hits, the, um, you know, trade, taxes, economic growth, um, all back Dottie, uh, the, his death was a, was a crowd pleaser as well. So uh-huh. it, uh, and I had a chance to talk to, to a lot of, uh, uh Trump voters and, and rally goers and, um, all very friendly and, uh, were, were interested to, you know, tell me why they were there and, and, uh, and what they, what they appreciated the most about the president. And okay. So se- several follow-ups here first, um, Anyone yell at you fake news, anything like that? So, uh, what was an interesting um, dynamic is one on one, no. Uh-huh. In 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 individual conversations, no. Um, we had the press badges and everything. We were we were labeled. Um, but you know, if if we were in a group of a, a gaggle of journalists, uh-huh. then it was there. You know, people would walk by with the thumbs down, or yeah. um, you know, and several times during during Trump's comments, he'll he'll kind of. Um, you know, whip up a, a frenzy. Uh, we're all we're all confined to this little pen in the back of the in the back of the arena, and so you know, he he points and says, you know, fake news media will will not report this the way that I want it or the way that it is or whatever. And then you know, you get kind of some of the some of the uh, really loud boos, but you know, it's it's comes with the territory. So, second question: Is it not inspectors general? You know, not inspector generals. I, I should probably just leave the podcast studio now, <laughs> you know, and maybe, maybe the dispatch too. Maybe. Is, I mean, uh, this is you one are of, correct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like attorneys general, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's one of these weird old style things. And, yep. you know, part of the thing that I think Trump critics, and obviously I'm 
kind of one, but, uh, you know, that a lot of my fellow Trump skeptics, never Trumpers, whatever you want to call the rich and diverse world of people who haven't drunk all the Kool-Aid, one of the things they don't necessarily appreciate is that a lot of Trump supporters actually see it as entertainment rather than like this life or death thing. And I'm not saying they don't get passionate about it, but there are a lot of people get passionate about professional wrestling and, you know, they won't admit it necessarily, but they know it's not necessarily real. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've written a couple of columns where I've talked about how a lot of Trumpism is really kayfabe where he's just putting on a show for people. And it, it, nowhere does that seem more true than at the rallies. Mm-hmm. Did you get a sense of that? Does, and also keenly, I don't want, and I do not want to do anything that would call into question your, adamantine journalistic objectivity here. But did you get any sense that Mike Pence can do anything uh, close to what Trump can do in terms of entertaining a crowd? You know, he did open and he, and he spoke uh, Mike Pence for, you know, 10, 15 minutes uh, leading up, but Almost. So the longest week you spent in Hershey, Pennsylvania, was the 15 <laughs> minutes you heard Mike Pence talk. A lot of a lot of Space Force talk. Um, a Space lot Force. Of, but but honestly, the the biggest applause lines Pence got were when he was amping up the president, and, uh-huh. and when um, you know he was almost almost downplaying his own role, and and and. There were some. <laughs> How do you downplay your own role for Mike Pence? It's he, you know, he he got up there and he was like, "I was present for for all of these um, negotiations on USMCA, but you know who really got it done was Donald Trump, and uh-huh. and and things like that." And you know, those those were his biggest applause lines. You know, it's and it, it's it's difficult because people are going to those rallies, as you say, not necessarily to hear. I mean, they they want to hear about. Trump's accomplishments and, and what he's doing in Washington, but they, they want to go for a show and, right. you know, they want to go for him to recreate the, uh, the love texts between Lisa Page and, and, uh, Peter Stroke, which he did for way too long last night. Um, and he's done it at several of them, you know, they want that kind of stuff. They want him to jeer at the press they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, some people that I talked to at the rally, you know, that there were, uh, was a woman who didn't support him in 2016, but is there now because of his accomplishments. There's there was one who told me um, that Trump often talks before he thinks, uh, which he said, but I do that too, and and he hasn't done anything that that has harmed the country because of it. Um, but then there are also supporters that are there because of, not in spite of those those kind of um, asides, and and see it as entertaining and um, have a lot of fun at at the rallies that way. Um, I'm still trying to get my head around Mike Pence downplaying his accomplishments as vice president. It's it's kind of like Peter Dinklage downplaying his height. Um, <laughs> but did you never did you? I don't want to. I don't want to be leading the witness. Uh, <laughs> did you ever feel like it was that the hostility was ever something like when he was ta- turning the crowd on the press? Was it something that? made you actually uncomfortable or you just thought you were sort of part of the show? You were a meat prop. No, it's definitely, definitely the latter. Um, you know, the I tried to get you to say meat prop and you wouldn't do it. <laughs> Damn it. It's uh meat prop. There you go. <laughs> um, but no, I think although the, you know, four foot fence that they had us fenced in, wasn't going to protect us from any, any mobs. If, if it came to that, it, um, you know, I think, I think people understood that we are kind of a, a, a necessary, um, 
uh, foil for for Trump in a lot of ways. And and when you know before the rally started, when there were hordes of us roaming around, kind of um, interviewing voters, talking to, to people who were there, um, there were a couple that were like, you know, no, thanks, I'm not interested, or I, I don't um, want to talk to you guys. But nobody was. Um, uh, aggressive about it. Um, and then there were the majority of people that I talked to wanted to because mm-hmm. they feel very strongly in support of the president and they want to, um, explain why and, and have, have their voices heard. And so, um, I would say, no, I think, you know, um, I know there have been instances where, um, journal journalists have felt threatened at, at some of these rallies and, and, um, I'm, sure that that has happened in, in some of these places, but last night, no, it, it seems like it's kind of part of the, part of the show. So I'm working on the assumption that you were the diligent and comprehensive journalist that we hired you to be, uh, how you, I'm presuming that you've looked at the polling more recently than I am. How's Trump doing in Pennsylvania? It's, it's close. Um, so he, he won, uh, Pennsylvania, I think by 0.7 percentage points in right. 2016. Um, and, you know, that was it wasn't the state to put him. I think that was the state that got him to 269 electoral votes. And then Wisconsin put him over the edge um, to to actually win. But there is no real path to um, to 270 votes without Pennsylvania for Trump. You yeah. know, even if even if he wins Florida, if he wins Arizona, if he wins um, North Carolina, you're still going to need kind of, you know, either Michigan or Pennsylvania or, or Wisconsin to kind of take it, take it over the finish line. And and. Um, I had a chance to talk to uh, Trump campaign spokeswoman uh, Kaylee McEnany before the the rally, and and she said as much. She they're trying to expand the map um, for him, obviously going into 2020, but they're not taking Pennsylvania for granted. They're going to probably be there um, at very consistently over the next several months. Um, but it's close, and 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 so I think the New York Times had that um, Rust Belt poll mm. um, that generated a lot of news probably about a month ago now. Um, I want to say Trump was still leading in in Pennsylvania there uh, against everybody except Joe Biden. Um, mm-hmm. I can double check that, but um, it will be will be a pivotal state. Yeah, I mean, um, my recollection is that the only state that they have a kind of comfortable not comfortable, but you could see them doing it chance of expanding the map with is Minnesota. Right? They came within a few thousand mm-hmm. in twenty sixteen. Um, but Minnesota, if you take Minnesota and don't win Pennsylvania, I don't think you're there. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I just pulled up this polling now. So it has the New York times. This is from November, uh, early November, Biden up three on Trump in Pennsylvania, Sanders up one and Warren tied. Yeah. So it's, I mean, and a year out, um, election polling is, is lots can change, but oh, you take it to the bank, dude. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, also the part of the problem is if part of the problem for Trump is that if, if Hillary, if, if, if they can just get Hillary, didn't get close to Obama's numbers for African-Americans, you could split the difference between Hillary and Obama in terms of at black turnout. Mm-hmm. Um, Pennsylvania has gone, right? Cause there just aren't enough white rural voters to make up, for, you know, Philly and Pittsburgh and, and all of that. And it's sort of the same problem with Wisconsin with if Milwaukee, if African-American turnout is what it was for Obama, which it was too high to count on that. But if they if that vote just turns out in in solid numbers, it's very difficult to see how you take Wisconsin. Right. Um, right. And 
you know, that's one of the things I think is sort of, I want to write a, I think I want to write a column about this, but I love the, um, the diversity panic among the democratic field, um, in the, so in so far as, um, there was, there was all this chatter on Twitter that like Joe Biden was outrageously and unfairly taking black votes from Kamala Harris. You know, I remember tweeting out one of these things was like, how dare he? You know, I mean, it's like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> why should he be like vilified for actually winning black votes? I thought that was what politicians should want is to. Right. Like, you and, know. and along the same lines, I think that arguments like that are also vilifying the black voters themselves, thinking right. that they can't think for themselves and, and, and choose the candidate that they think is best to represent their interests. And well, so, but that's sort of the funny thing is that the, the diversity panic among the Democrats is almost entirely among white liberals and a handful of, of African-American and other minority activist types who have a vested interest in, in like hyping this, these notions of diversity in a very sort of, you know, I don't want to say monetizable way, but like the, they, the, it just simply will not do to their business model for their business models. If, if Joe Biden can be the candidate of, of, of black female voters, you right, know? Right. And, um, but the idea, I mean, I just find this fascinating. This is actually what I want to write about is like, so Barack Obama is the first African-American president. It's great. We broke that barrier. Whatever you think about a Barack Obama, you know, that was a, something that the country should, should celebrate. And lots of Republicans did. People forget that Obama had, you know, for a while above 70 um, percent approval rating. And so that means, you know, some significant chunk of people who voted for John McCain were still, you know, we're, we're still hoping for the best with Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so you get eight years of the first African-American president and then the first major party female candidate runs. And then in 2019, because you still have the largest field ever, but it is dominated by a woman, two Jews, a gay guy, two other black guys. Um, I think I'm, I, I, maybe I'm leaving somebody Latino, out. Latino, Andrew a, Yang. A, a Latino and, and an Asian. And everyone is freaking out about the lack of diversity. I mean, it's a weird, it's sort of like a tulip bulb craze kind of, right. kind of weirdness thing going on there. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely a generational thing. Um, I think if you, if you break down the numbers behind Biden's support, um, particularly among African Americans, it's much higher um, with with older uh, Black voters. But at the same time, you know, it's they are the ones making these decisions, and and you know, the people in in New York and and DC can prognosticate about what it means and and what um, you know who people should support based on X Y Z identity. But you know, it's it's about messages. It's about um, I think a lot of voters view Joe Biden as a safe option, as one who is the most likely to, to beat Trump. And if, if that's what your number one priority is, um, then then that's how you're going to cast your ballot. And, you know, since when does, you know, when do senior citizens count against, you know, diversity? It's it's yeah. anyway, um, you know, what what the Democratic Party should have done if they really wanted to get the best field possible is they should have gone to ZipRecruiter. 
But look, it's it's not just the Democratic Party. It's it's hiring is difficult everywhere. We've had a really rough time, um, as as Declan is obviously the proof of. Um, but uh, ZipRecruiter is one of those resources that makes um, makes hiring less of a chore and more of a resource. And for example, Codable co-founder Gretchen Hebner experienced how challenging hiring can be after unsuccessfully searching for a new game artist to grow with her education tech company. But then she switched to ZipRecruiter and saw an immediate difference. And you can too by signing up for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. And by using ZipRecruiter's screening questions to filter candidates, Gretchen found it easier to focus on the best ones and then find the right one. In fact, after posting her job on ZipRecruiter, Gretchen said she was honestly surprised she found qualified applicants so quickly and hired a new game artist in less than two weeks. With results like that, it's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash D-I-N-G-O. We thank ZipRecruiter for sponsoring the Remnant Podcast. Okay, so um, changing gears a bit. So uh, after you went to that little school outside of Boston, you came to Washington, you did, you worked for, as a sort of researcher policy guy for lobbyist people. We don't need to get too deep in the weeds in that, right? Something like that? Political consulting it, people? Well, yeah, so public public affairs consulting is, is the okay. nomenclature. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and because you wanted to continue to be able to see your own reflection in the mirror. You decided you wanted to do something else and you wanted to give your, give a shot at, at reporting and journalism. And, and we're delighted that we're going to give you that opportunity. Um, so one of the things you've been doing is going around a lot on the Hill talking yes. to that phylum um, <laughs> and uh, uh, cultivating sources, you know, uh, hitting every shoeshine stand and dropping a Benjamin saying, you know, what do you know? What do you hear? That kind of thing. Um, how's that been? What's like your impression of the Hill and all that? Yeah. So this is, I never did the Hill internship. Um, really wasn't up there all that much from, for my last job. So this is kind of the first time I've spent significant time up there. And, uh, and I can see why people kind of get sucked in and, and never leave. It's, it's very much, um, almost like a college dorm atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, people are, are up there. There's lots of cafeterias. There's, um, you know, uh, a gym, there's all the, all these amenities. And, uh, you're just around a ton of people who care about the same things that you do and, um, are also willing to work crazy hours for, for no money. Um, and, uh, but you know, it's, it's, uh, been really interesting to kind of start to, to talk to people in, in various offices and, um, try and understand why things have played out the way that they have over the past three years and, and, um, and you know, what, what the next few months are going to hold, let alone, um, the next few years. And so it's, and people aren't sure. Um, there's a lot of, uh, throwing stuff at the wall, seeing what sticks, um, especially on the Republican side, there's, 
you know, because Trump blots out the sun in, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of interesting experimentation going on, um, on, on, on the Republican side, kind of, um, feeling out where they can, um, you know, divert from orthodox conservatism to kind of capture some of Trump's more populist message and, um, and see how that goes. And if, if you, you know, ask them, uh, if that's what they're doing, they'll say no, but it's, it clearly is a kind of a forward looking 2024, uh, 2028. What, uh, what is the Republican party going to be? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I have assiduously avoided going to the Hill from my last 25 plus years here in Washington. And I, because Steve Hayes, my partner in crime and all this stuff, um, thinks it's really important for us to sort of fly the flag and talk to senators and congressmen and, have them understand where we're coming from directly from us rather than listening to the sort of pejorative version of what we're doing from mm-hmm. the left or from the right. Um, I've had to go meet with a large number of politicians over the last three weeks, month or something like that. And while I enjoy meeting or having conversations with all these people, it's interesting. They're all off the record and been to some people's homes and some people's offices and all the rest. Um, first of all, it's, I've been to the Hill more in the last six weeks than I had been in the previous 15 years. And, um, um, and it's funny you mentioned this, maybe you're just repeating back points you've, um, heard on, uh, this podcast, but I've always counseled young people when they come to Washington that if they go to the Hill, don't go for very long. Um, because, you can get sucked into that subculture up there because it's so big. You don't realize, you don't realize it's a subculture and yeah. it really is like a big college campus and everybody's, you know, and, and there's these phrases for it. I forget the language, but in sociology, there's the, you know, these small increases in status have, um, um, outside significance in isolated cultures, you mm-hmm. know, um, so the kid who gets the special badge that lets them use this elevator or you know sit right. in this committee or when the senator or the congressman says, okay, now we got to talk about X, you, you, and you leave and you, you, and you stay to be one of the ones who gets to stay. Yeah. That's a big deal right. and all that kind of stuff. And you can get so caught up with that if you're you know one of these type A people that before you know it, really if you're all incestuously dating each other and it's just, <laughs> it's, it's sort of like that scene and the bowels of Zion and the matrix movies. Um, pretty soon you're like 34 years old and you've only, you only know the Hill and you only know this thing. And then people outside of the Hill, you know, normal Americans are outraged when Hill staffers become lobbyists. I was like, what else do you want them to be? That's the only thing they know is like what that one. It's not like you can go to Denver and take your skill about understanding the the internecines, you know, and intricacies of of markup you know, process, yeah, or and postal <laughs> reform, yeah. you know, and all that kind of stuff. It's like that's what you know. That's where you have to be, and that's what you have to do. But anyway, that's sort of a standard uh, complaint of mine. Um, so, uh, what are what are sort of the interesting lessons you've learned about sort of. Uh, cultivating sources and all that kind of stuff, which I've, I, I've had to start doing this too. <laughs> I do not enjoy it. Um, but I'm wondering since you're more like Andy Garcia from the untouchables, you know, you're, <laughs> we got you out of the police Academy and you're still you know young <laughs> enough to like bend to the culture. You know, it's, uh, if, if any sources are listening right now, hello. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, it's, it's been, it's been great. It's, uh, 
you know, people, I think people are very excited about what we're doing. Um, I think especially on the right, there is kind of a desire for um, kind of this fact-based, um, you know, detailed reporting that we're doing, but also uh, some of the po- most positive feedback I've gotten is about the pace of what we're doing and how uh-huh. we're slowing things down and, um, and trying to, you know, publish once a day in the morning, let it sit, spend the next day or two days reporting everything out and have more context and more um, understanding uh, for, for our readers. And I, th- I think because the, you know, these, the people that I'm meeting with have spent the past three years hearing from reporters, hey, Trump just tweeted this, what's your boss's response? And, and so the, the fact that we're not gonna necessarily be going for the um, gotcha questions, the, the like kind of um, meaningless scoops on, on that kind of stuff um, and trying to be, think a little bit more big picture and, and um, really understanding what's, what are kind of the underlying forces at play. I think that that has, has gotten a pretty positive reception so far. Yeah. So we'll see if we can live up to it, but. See, one of the, re- there are many, many reasons why I did not become a reporter reporter. And one of them, which I think is on full display in this podcast quite often, is that I have a very difficult time just asking informational questions and like, <laughs> oh, that's interesting. And when I listen to people say things that I find outrageous or disagreeable or, or annoying or whatever, I can't just do, oh, oh, hmm, tell me more. Or, oh, that's interesting. And I used to think it was a character defect of people who could do that. And I realized, no, it's just a skill that I don't really have. And maybe I could train myself. But yeah. um, there are, uh, I'm obviously very new to, to being a reporter, but there seem to be um, kind of conflicting uh, threads of, of how you can kind of go about that. You can, you know, challenge the source in person and say, no, that's not true. Uh, you know, and that, but that, that kind of shuts shuts everything down, shuts the conversation down. What you could also do is say, oh, that's interesting. And then, you know, do some fact checking on the back end when you, when you publish and maybe in the 10 minutes that you keep the conversation going, you'll learn a little bit more, hear a little bit more about what's going on and, and kind of cultivate that relationship. So it, it is, it is a balancing act, but yeah. still figuring it out. Um, I'm glad someone is cause <laughs> I, I'm not. Um, all right, so uh, what else should we talk about? Uh, have you read the Inspector General report? Not all 430 pages of it, uh-huh. um, but I've read portions of it, and I listened to the Advisory Opinions uh-huh. podcast yesterday about it, and I also read David French's <laughs> um, French Press about it, and I read the segment about it in the Morning Dispatch today. So <laughs> I, I basically read 430 pages of it just in, in different forms. So it's... Uh, but it is it is kind of one of those things, and I think David mentioned it on the podcast yesterday, where it's almost like the inverse of the Mueller report, where the most salacious, most extreme uh, rumors, conspiracies, what have you, are not true. But that doesn't um, erase kind of some underlying misconduct. Um, uh, with the Mueller report, you know, it was collusion, but there was still plenty of instances of, of wrongdoing um, here, you know, that... There wasn't some grand political conspiracy to undermine the the Trump campaign with this with this um, investigation, but that doesn't mean that the FBI acted impeccably and and was you know dotting all their T's, crossing all their I's, and so it's um, you know the, and that kind of situation leads to both sides retreating to their corners and declaring victory. And um. <laughs> yeah, no, that's I mean that's sort of my frustration with this. I'm you know um, I'm willing to admit. 
I had more faith in the FISA process than I should have because it turned out it kind of fell apart. And um, but the and also I'm still holding out the possibility that there was political motivation behind some of these errors. It is kind of strange that in statistics, I mean, you're, you're the Harvard boy uh, <laughs> in statistics, if 17 random occurrences happen and they all go the same right. way, the idea that it's random doesn't, you know, if there were just errors, you would think it would have turned out they fell 50, 50, but right. they didn't, they all went against page and against Trump. So, and just because Horowitz says they found no testimonial or documentary evidence of political bias. That is not saying that they found that there's no evidence of political bias. They just couldn't find it. Right. And right. so um, I'm open to the possibility that there was political bias at the same time. What kind of drives me crazy about all of this stuff is um, you had a bunch of people. We don't need to name names because everybody knows who they are. Um and I've made enough enemies in the last you know, pick your time period. Um, <laughs> but you have all these people who have been saying deep state conspiracy. This is, you know, uh, you know profound, uh, lawless, unconstitutional, you know, hail Hydra kind of thing. And then this report comes out and it corroborates one sliver of their massive indictment. And they all declare victory and they all, you know, they're all going through my Twitter feed to find crap to sort of attack me for. And um, and you find the same thing on the left where because it disproves the crazy people or the crazy conspiracy theories, they think there's nothing in here that lends credence to the Trumpian critique. When in reality, if I, you know, there's a lot in here that would piss me off if I were on the on yeah. team Trump. And um, and I tried to use this extended metaphor or analogy on glop and it really went south. It kind of sounded like Joe Biden on, on mescaline, <laughs> but it kind of reminds me like, you know, in movies where like the marauders from uh, Mad Max dystopia or savages and the, you know, in some remote Island or whatever, they find some huge trove of like cargo in a warehouse or a down plane and they each grab things. They don't really understand what they are and they all think they got the trophy. So one gets like a spaghetti <laughs> colander and the other one gets, you know, uh, you know, a huge, huge crate of tampons or whatever it is, you know, and they all think, ah, look what I got. Look what I got. Everyone is grabbing at this huge carcass of a report and claiming their bit is the most important thing. And, I don't want to dwell on this too much because the IG is record. It was testifying today as we were you know, shortly before we were recording this and I didn't say, get to spend any time listening to it, but I just find the whole spectacle of people who are very, very, very wrong about a lot of big things claiming victory um, on either side to be remarkably annoying. And, you know, I'm, I think the right approach, which is not, you know, I have to train myself on, is to be a little humble about this. Admit I got some stuff wrong, um, but so did everybody else who's attacking me for getting stuff wrong. And yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a giant Mott and Bailey argument, which just kind of drives me crazy. Did they teach you Mott and Bailey stuff at Harvard? They didn't, no. Okay, well, <laughs> uh, you'll Google it and we'll have a quiz later, but it's a form of argument where you make sweeping assertions in, the, I believe it's the Mott, which is like the area where, you know, the peasants gather hay and whatnot. And mm -hmm. then- 
when when questioned or hit resistance, you retreat to the bailey, which is the fortress, and you then make a very narrow statement. So like, all left-handed people are homosexual, and and then someone says you can't truly be serious, and you retreat to well, really, I just meant. Ted is homosexual or whatever. <laughs> and it's that, it's that kind of approach, right? It's all I'm saying, you know, people start with these sweeping statements about white supremacy or conspiracy theories or whatever. And then when challenged on it, they go back to a much smaller defensible thing. Um, that's a Martin Bailey argument. At least that's my understanding of it. Um, all right. So uh, have you been watching The Mandalorian? I have been watching The Mandalorian. Um, I, was telling, I was telling you earlier that I am listening to a podcast that is an hour and a half on each episode when each episode is only 30 minutes and so uh that is the the ringer uh binge mode podcast shout out to shout out to them but interesting so i am very much watching the mandalorian you're clearly pro mandalorian because no one listens to an hour and a half podcast about a half hour tv show if they don't like the tv show right correct yes so i i signed up for disney plus the day that uh the day that it launched and actually that's Mandalorian is the only thing that I've watched on it so far, but eventually I will uh, have kids and then be able to have, <laughs> make, make full use of it. And you were, uh, so this is, I, whatever your answer is, it's going to make me start cutting myself. But um, what was the first Star Wars movie you saw in the theater? Revenge of the Sith. Okay. And that came out when? Is that 2003? Dear God. Something like that. Okay. Yeah. But I, I watch. I had the uh, the original trilogy on a box set, I think on VHS, um, and was a big fan. So of So you those. have memory of VHS. That's good. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I uh, coincidentally, I grew up in New York City, but I actually saw the first Star Wars movie. The first Star Wars movie. Uh, back before people really called it Episode Four or anything like that. Um, uh, at the Uptown Theater in Washington, D.C. Oh, okay. We were visiting family friends, and my dad took my brother and I to this movie that was supposed to be really good, low-budget sci-fi movie, and, yeah. you know, the rest was history. Um, yeah, what were what were expectations back then? Well, I, so, I, admittedly, I was a little kid. So, yeah. I mean, this is 1977, so yeah. um, I was a kid kid. But I didn't—there was a lot of buzz about it, because, like, I remember—this is back in the days where you couldn't— because their internet did not exist, except in some weird labs at the Pentagon. Um, you And you couldn't call ahead to reserve tickets. You waited on a line, um, sort of like a Soviet bread line, but for tickets. And we waited and waited and waited and waited and the um, to buy tickets. And literally when we got to the window, they sold out. And... So we bought tickets for the next showing and then got on the ticket holders line for another two hours. So clearly there was buzz going on because it was a big deal. Um, no, nope, people didn't normally wait in lines for movies like that. Um, um, but I, I have trouble conceptualizing kids. So you, let me put it this way. You liked Star Wars before you saw the Sith in the theater. You'd watch the originals on VHS. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I had some sort of sticker book or something explaining all the characters, and yeah, it was uh, it was a thing. I think my brother went uh, as Luke for Halloween uh-huh. one or two years in a row, something like that. See, the great thing about going as Luke is if if you leave the um, 
lightsaber someplace, people will think you're just going as Barishnikov or something. <laughs> um, so uh, back to the Mandalorian. Since you're one of, are you a, you're not a millennial. You're, I am the youngest possible millennial. Okay. My, my family disputes this, but I technically the cutoff is 1995 and that was when I was born. Okay. So, um, so when you were growing up, did, um, did you watch Westerns? Do you get, get all the Western references in the Mandalorian? I have, I have since watched some Westerns, um, uh, True Grit was one that, uh -huh. um, and then uh, was it? There was was it a Coen Brothers movie like Three Ten to Reno something uh -huh. about the, yeah? Um, was that a Coen Brothers movie? Maybe Three Ten to Yuma. Yes, yes, Three Ten to Yuma. I don't think it was a Coen Brothers. It movie. Might, might might not have been a Coen Russell, Brothers. It was a remake with Russell Crowe, and then yes. it was the original one a long time ago. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I have seen I have seen westerns, um, but not in the same way. And then I and then I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh -huh. uh, Tarantino's latest, and and that. Um, glorified kind of the heyday of, of Westerns. And when I was watching that, I realized that that was not the world that I grew up in. So it was, no, I don't. Yeah. Um, what's the, it's, it's, it's not bone, something bone tomahawk or whatever. Um, it's a Kurt Russell Western came out recently. If you're going to start going to school on Westerns, save that one for the advanced class. Um, I'll, I'll remember what the full name of it is in a second. But um, yeah, for me, I grew up, see, I grew up in a world where there were, you know, because I grew up in New York City, we had five channels, you know, six channels, whatever it was. It was three networks, two lo three local stations and PBS. And so maybe this is why I didn't get into Harvard. The way we work for us is if, if you couldn't find something to watch on TV. You simply watched the least objectionable thing. And one of the nice things about that is in back in those days, that meant you actually exposed yourself to much more interesting things than you would have. Like today, kids growing up who are big TV watchers, they can always find an episode of Friends somewhere, right? right. And so they just watch that kind of stuff. And then you rewatch it 30 times right. and you don't, yeah, you know what you like and you can always get it. So. But I, you know, I grew up, you know, it's like, well, the day of the Triffids is the only thing on. It's on <laughs> WOR. I'm going to watch day of the Triffids. And, um, uh, and so I watched a lot of Westerns. Um, and it's funny. I was talking about this on Glop. I get, I, I, I don't have a good enough memory anymore to remember which cliches come from which Westerns. But when I watch the Mandalorian and it's just, it just hits you over the head. There are all of these like language of cinema things from Westerns that are in it. I mean, the one that was really unsubtle even though they didn't get together seven people the when they saved the the, the shrimp farmers or whatever yeah. those things were yeah, yeah, yeah. that was just pure magnificent seven stuff whichever version of it you want um but there's also like shane stuff going on and high noon stuff going on and all the rest yeah it's i mean it, it makes sense that those the westerns were so popular for so long for a reason and now being able to kind of reintroduce you have to add some lasers and some um, you know, helmets and whatnot, but you can kind of reintroduce those same themes now and, and people will, will latch on. All right. So um, anything that we left out that you think you've been, that's just to say for the sake of argument, say you've been dying to be on the remnant all of these years. And you're always <laughs> like, if only I could talk about post liberal nationalism or something like that and, and set everybody straight. You got any of those kind of burning issues or are you just like too scared uh, of starting an argument? Uh, Mitch Trubisky was the correct 
draft choice at, at number two um, back in 2017 for the Bears. He's he's about to have a big breakout. But other than that, I think uh, hopefully this won't be the last time, and uh, I'll be back once I come up with with more things to, to piss people off about. Fair enough. All right. So, Declan Garvey, thank you so much for uh, coming on The Remnant, and thank you for all your hard work. It's going to get worse before it gets better for you. And um, uh, I got to do some housekeeping stuff, but thanks, to ha- thanks for coming on. Great. Thanks for having me. Okay, so normally I would say uh, our guest, Declan, has has left the studio, but in fact he's sitting very quietly here as he watches me do this because he's got some sort of semi-creepy curiosity about what this whole how this whole thing works. Um, and uh, don't worry, I haven't killed Jack Butler. Uh, Jack just had some personal travel that he had to do, and we wanted to test drive this equipment here, but Jack will be back. Um and in the meantime, if people can go to thedispatch.com and sign up for our newsletters, sign up for the Morning Dispatch, which De- which Declan is, works diligently on, um, uh, that would be great for us. If you can start checking out our other podcasts, because more and more are coming out um, by the week, and that would be great, including the latest Advisory Opinions by uh, uh, Sarah Isger and our friend David French. That would be wonderful. And um, other than that... Uh, we have some really exciting guests coming up in the new year and hopefully for the rest of this month. Um, though I haven't figured out the rest of this month part, but we have figured out a lot of cool stuff in the new year. And um, thanks to Eric again for everybody for their support for the dispatch and everything that we're doing. And I will see you next time. <laughs> no butler. <laughs>